Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Johnny, 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 whoops, Johnny, whoops, Johnny, how are you? I am good. I am good. I'm grinning because this is episode 222, and I'm remembering the TV show Room 222. I'm a little bit older than you, maybe. No, I you, remember it. You don't remember not that? that much older. As how cute Karen Valentine was, and Michael Considine as the Bill Leaguered principal, and uh, it had a good theme song, uh, another classic early 70s sitcom. Yeah. Those uh, young were the days. Take a moment, catch up. Uh, it, it was a a slightly progressive show for its time. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. We Absolutely. are in episode 22 of season two. Uh, and because our numbering is all out of whack, uh, we'll be listening to chapters 23 and chapter 24. I've given Yeah, I know. The bullet I wash my hands and my feet in the numbering system. I can't help anybody. I, I can't even help myself. I apologize to that's you. Not and, your, please. It was, the, it was the only way to make it work. I'm sorry. It's anyway. Fine. Let's get right to the heart of this, which is Jim Meskimen. I first came across our guest today, Jim Meskimen, on TikTok, where he posted some really lovely video impressions. He is the official Robin Williams impressionist for whenever Disney does something new that needs the voice of uh, the Aladdin genie. He does that. He's their guy. And he also does everyone else. He really does. People that you wouldn't necessarily think of doing. Jeff Bridges, for instance. I've never heard anybody do Jeff Bridges but he does not perfectly. Colin Firth, there's somebody you don't think, who does an impression of Colin Firth? He just does everybody. And yeah. listening to him talk about how that process works and how he filters them through himself is fascinating to me. Yeah, I played it last episode. I'm going to play it again just because I love it. This is when I first met Jim Meskman. He was kind enough to record this little audio ad for the Eli Marks series as uh, Lieutenant Columbo. Okay, geez. I, you know what? I almost forgot. One, one more thing. I don't want to take up too much of your time. It just occurred to me, you know, if you like mysteries that are both uh, fun and funny, well, you know, I, I think you're going to really like the Eli Marks mystery series. Mrs. Colombo, she just raves about them. Anyway, sorry, sorry to bother you. It's just great. It's, I can't hear it too much. Sometimes I know. And I listen it's... to it when you're not around. And it's, you know, it's an impressionist is one of the other variety artists out there, like jugglers and ventriloquists, like, you know, magicians are variety artists. But what he does is sort of a magic trick. It's well, it um, absolutely is. Yeah, it uh, he creates a thing right before your eyes. And as you'll hear him discuss in the interview, uh, it's about establishing a point of view. That's what makes a good impression is it establishes a point of view, which is something we've heard from many, many magicians we've talked to uh, this past season and last year as well. Absolutely. Point of view is uh, what sets the, the, the great apart from the good, I think. I, I think you're absolutely right there. And, and he certainly is great. Yeah, he really is. One of the one of the questions we often ask magicians is, how did you get started in magic? Uh, and the answer is often, I got a magic kit when I was nine or 11 or whatever. And for an impressionist, there's no kit that you get that, that I know of. Now, now, some will tell me, no, John, there obviously is. There's a, there's a Frank Gorshin sure. impressionist kit that you could have. Yeah, on eBay, bought. you can pick up a, uh, a rich yeah. little kit. Yes. John Biner presents impressionist <laughs> cards. I mean, it's 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 just not going to happen. And for Jim Meskimen, the, the lure was, as a kid, he wanted to sound like an adult. You know, as a little boy, I always wanted to be an adult, which <laughs> is probably very common. You know, I like to, to, to act like an old man, you know, do those kind of characters and stuff. Yeah. And uh, so the, most of the old men I knew, I saw on TV. You know, I knew a few personally, but not as many as I saw, on, you know, the old Westerns that were on that were so ubiquitous back in the day. So, I, so you got your own Gabby Hayes going or your Artie yeah, Johnson? Yeah, yeah, Artie man. Johnson, 100%. Artie Johnson, man. I, yeah. I love, do you want a, you want a walnut? Oh, I, <laughs> I got to direct uh, Artie Johnson one time on an audio book and it was such a pleasure. He was such a sweet, sweet little man. Oh, okay. So you wanted to be old men. Yeah, I wanted to do voice. And, and my mom obviously demonstrated to me that, you know, doing characters and stuff was fine and, and fun and you could play with it. And she did accents and I kind of learned to do accents. I had a good ear and that sort of thing. So, uh, and, and, but I didn't have this goal of like, well, I want to have a room in Vegas someday and wear a powder blue tuxedo. Uh, but I did enjoy watching the great Rich Little and I was 
amazed and it was like a it was like a magic trick for sure to see it and then but i was a little bit slow to realize that it was my calling card that i should proffer uh, at every opportunity in order to make it as an actor in my case it opened a lot of doors to do it from my earliest jobs had to do with doing impressions and finally it struck me like a thunderbolt aha this is how people want to meet me and uh, how i become real to people where I take it from there is fine, but there should always be this presence of this skill, this mode of expression. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you seem very willing to just do this party trick at the drop of a hat. And and a lot of magicians have that same thing where they're always expected to have something on them mm-hmm. that they can they can quickly do. And some resist it and others go just the other way and go, nope, you want something? I got it. Here it is. A couple of times I've been in a friend's uh, house when uh, his uh, he's an entertainment lawyer and he is very good friends with a guy named David Blaine. <laughs> and uh, a couple of times David Blaine has come over to where I was standing and said, hey, uh, take this card. And then proceeded to turn the universe inside out in front of me. And uh, he doesn't have any back off on it at all. I, 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 think, I think it's a good idea to figure out if, if you're an impressionist or an actor or performer of some kind to figure out something that is portable that you can always kind of demonstrate your skill and delight someone in front of you. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons to have an ability to delight people in front of you. You know, and you won't ever find that need running out, I don't think. You're an actor as well as an impressionist. How does, does your background as an actor help you build some of the impressions that you do because you're spot on on hundreds of people come out of your body and and they're right on the money is that coming from your acting background or is it some other uh you know a weird gift that you personally have yeah it's the uh, chromosome 35 oh damn it i didn't get that one yeah i know it took me i had to wait in line it was down in culver city (laughs) I'm still not sure if it was pure or not. No, I, I, well, it's, you know, when we talk about acting, we're talking about viewpoint and shifting viewpoint. And uh, when I, uh, I just played a character on Gaslit, the, the show on stars with Sean Penn and Julia Roberts, where it was based on a real guy, uh, a senator, Senator Gurney, Ed Gurney of Florida. And there was not a ton of video on him, but I did study all that I could. And I definitely brought to bear everything I use as an impressionist when I'm trying to match, voice match somebody. Kind of just sort of be in their space and see what I can see. And the best is if you can actually meet them, but that rarely happens in my case, uh, especially with people that have <laughs> passed on. But uh, I, I just uh, I observe the voice, how they hold themselves. I try to get an idea or a picture of like, who is this person, you know, and we can get a lot of data. There's a lot of information in a recording, particularly the voice, our voices, even, even poor recordings. I think there's an awful lot of information there, background, education, general health, uh, age, uh, you know, lots and lots of little, little things that are telling. And I, you know, over the years, I've just become rather skilled at perceiving all these different wavelengths and picking apart and going, all right, well, what, what about this? What's his emotion like? You know, particularly emotion is like one of the most important ones as that we all kind of float along in a certain emotional band, you know, it changes, it goes up and down as we're exhilarated or as we get depressed or have, you know, bad luck happen to us or have something amazing happen. You know, our emotion shifts and changes all the time. It's kind of like on, on the surface of the sea. Uh, and so I observed that and the tone and the pitch and, the way they hold themselves, the way they hold their mouth is interesting. You know, like Garrison Keeler, I'm reminded of your uh, countryman there, Jim, I think. Uh, yeah. Garrison from uh, Minnesota, he's got a certain way of holding his jaw that uh, I think informs a lot. He has to push it forward a bit just to make that sound, you know. <laughs> I, I look That's at things great. like that. Yeah. But what you're also bringing to it, and I'm going to say something heretical here, although I adored Rich Little, he didn't have and doesn't have the improv skills that you bring. So he can do the thing he does. But I've seen you on video be thrown something and you can just go with it in that character and then switch to another character. I mean, you're kind of like a Robin Williams of impressions because your ability to just take what was, you know, you're in the moment to say yes, and and off you go. And I think that elevates you as an impressionist because you're able to 
to a whole nother level that normally we don't see impressionists do. We see them do their impression of this person, whereas you are reacting in real time. Oh, thank you very much. I'm going to go on Amazon immediately and order you a congratulations wreath. <laughs> uh, that's very nice. Well, I, you know, Rich Little had a particular kind of career where doing the same bits every day was actually a requirement. I, I think, you know, in mm-hmm. casino work and stuff, I they don't really want you to <laughs> deviate a whole lot. Uh, and also uh, he had something that worked. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm always trying to find, you know, the next right answer to something. So thank you very much for that. And uh, yeah, I think it's all, it's all acting and, and it's, it's, it's super fun. And more often than not, I'm playing um, people that have already, we can, we can see what they're like. I played Johnny Carson before in a film. Uh, I'm going to be playing, I'm going to be playing Phil Donahue on Monday for a movie, uh, TV show. Who I, I didn't really consume much Phil Donahue stuff. I didn't watch Phil Donahue when he was on the air. I was too busy in New York and I didn't, our, we could never get a good TV signal in Manhattan at that time. But uh, I've been studying him now and, and uh, you know, it's like, okay, fine. If that's, that's part of my niche. And then sometimes I get to play people that, uh, that aren't necessarily uh, d- delineated by some prior celebrity. How'd you put together your act as an impressionist? Oh, it's, 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 it's burdensome. It's hard. It's hard work writing. And then once you've written it, it's hard work learning it. And you're like, who is this writer? God, hate this guy. Uh, And then you, you, then you learn in front of the audience, how to, what they like and what works and what doesn't work like a stand-up comedy comedian a little bit. Uh, It it was, it's, it's work. It's hard work. And, but I did have a purpose in mind. And I think that helps. If you have an overarching purpose, you know, a, a stand-up comedian has a certain kind of purpose and different kinds of stand-up comedians are, are going for different things. Some guys are going for the laugh, but they're not differentiating between a laugh of sheer delight and release and the laugh of, I can't believe you just said that, which is another kind of laugh and leaves the audience feeling in a different sort of way. Um, so in my show, I had a certain goal in mind of making the audience feel a certain way and even to perhaps have some realizations. And I didn't say it at the beginning of the show, the purpose of my show, it was just, I didn't tell anybody about it. I just uh, had it kind of as, well, that's that's my guiding principles and I'm trying to create this effect. I don't know exactly how to create this effect, uh, but I think it has to do with demonstrating that a person can change and be other people and occupy different viewpoints and they can do it in a virtuosic kind of way and express all kinds of little truths and little funny things and, and do it in an aesthetic manner. And, and it, should rea- it, it should impinge well on people, you know, and not make them feel worse or make them feel like, oh, my God, you're right. We're all screwed. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't want to do that. So, so that's what kind of guided me through. But it's just hard work. And also, you know, coming up with material my God, it's, it's a, it's a super, it's a, it's a super hard thing to do. And I, I have to, I, I'm, I'm feeling it very much right now because I have to really rewrite my whole show because this stuff is very perishable. Celebrities come and go, uh, you know, most of the people I do are now in their late eighties, let alone in their eighties. I, I used to do a lot of old people, but this is like, Oh my God. You know, I, I'm, I'm amazed that Ian McKellen is still around. Morgan Freeman is still around. He's still important enough to, to to evoke for people and that lordy yeah, but you do people that nobody does i've never heard anyone do george clooney before i mean and yeah, to or, ron dead, or ron howard right right, yeah. right ron howard yeah well. I, well thank you and i i know ron howard so it's uh you know i'm cheating there a little bit <laughs> george clooney i've i've had the opportunity to work with george clooney and he's a, a great guy a really nice guy <laughs> And Harvey Cartel, nobody does Harvey Cartel, which I think is very unusual because, I mean, he's in all those movies. He's in uh, Goodfellas and, uh, well, not Goodfellas, actually, the other one. He's, anyway, it doesn't matter. But um, didn't you have a run in with Harvey Cartel that changed your life? Well, as a matter of fact, I did. Yeah, it was it was the the cause or or accompanied the epiphany of realizing that I should become an actor. Uh, I was in Spain where I'd been studying painting. And just to make it a short story, I ran into Harvey Keitel on the street and I'd just seen him in a movie. And uh, he was in, I was in Madrid of all places. So not the typical place to run into a movie star. 
on the streets of Madrid, Spain, but there he was. And I talked to him and I recognized that after that meeting, I, I was so excited. My heart was pounding like it is when you meet someone that's really important to you. I hadn't even realized how important he was to me. Uh, maybe it could have been anybody, but you know, it was this guy who I just respected as an actor. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm exhilarated. This is just crazy. And then I had the presence of mind to go, you know, that's, this is a good reason maybe to take a look at this. It's like, what would I, what effect would I want to create on another person? I would love to be, have someone be so exhilarated that after they had a little conversation with me, they walked away and went, Oh my God, I'm going to do whatever. <laughs> you know? So uh, that was when I, I went, ah, I must, I get it now. I'll, I'll move to New York. I'll be an actor. And that settled a conundrum that I had been, wrestling with uh for years so I, I i always you know am trying to run into harvey keitel somewhere or have some sort of uh a chance to tell him i'm sure he won't care at all maybe he's created this effect on many people but uh it was super important to me and i'm very grateful i think it's great that you you're not just doing an act but that you built an act around trying to get a point of view across. And that's something that, uh, as you know, Jim and I have talked to a ton of magicians over the last couple of years. And one message that keeps coming back again and again is you're going to be a stronger, better performer if you have a point of view. Those are the magicians who stand out are the ones who, who have that as opposed to the ones who are just trying to get through the next trick. I understand that completely. I mean, I saw Penn and Teller in their first big show on, on, off Broadway, I guess it was. And, uh, and they very definitely had a point of view, something they were trying to tell you. They made it very clear, very plain. And then they blew your mind with all the tricks. And I, I imagine I'm not a magician myself, but I know a little bit about it. And I figured out a couple of things because I'm just, you know, nosy. Uh, but I realized, well, there's the trick and you buy it at the store and you practice it. And, you know, it has certain lines and stuff, but the great ones, like you said, are the ones that come up a way to present it and make it their own. And I've subsequently met some magicians that are just fantastic. They don't do the same trick like anybody else does it. Because at this point, we've seen the cups and balls. Right. I get it, you know, but you got to put some sort of a spin on it and the great ones do. And they make it and you go, ah, now I can enjoy the cups and balls again because it has this, it's just part of the mix. It's the performance. It's not the trick. It's what the performer has brought to it, which is, I'll go back to my, I hope not too fawning recommendation of you, which is that's what you're doing. You're not just doing, you know, uh, I, I just, I wonder if instead of Ulysses S. Grant, it was Cary Grant. I think it would go something like this. Yeah, right. You're not doing that. You're, you're integrating uh, all these different characters into a real situation to make a point. Yeah, 100%. Thank you. Thank you for that fawningness. <laughs> You're welcome. Can I ask just sort of a nuts and bolts question about Please. the impression? So I think I have a pretty good ear, but I don't have the ear that allows me to hear Robin Williams and then be able to have him come out of my mouth or hear Cary Grant and have it come out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. Is there what what is the do you go into a room or does it just happen? You hear it and you're able to do it, or do you have to go? No, oh, it's a little. I, I need what? How does it work? Well, I'm very practiced, so I can do it pretty fast. If I know that it's in my wheelhouse and I and I analyze quickly the components of something, then I can do it pretty quickly. But I, I'm going to say something that may not make any sense, but I think is very key, and I, is that most of us don't know what we sound like just regularly. Now you may have been able to listen to yourself in recordings or on Zoom playbacks or whatever and have some familiarity with your voice, but most people don't have a clue what they actually sound like to other people. And so it's very difficult for them to even know where they're starting with doing an impression, you know, because we hear ourselves through the body generally. That's different from the way you hear me and anybody else hears me when it gets out in the open air, it's a whole different set of vibrations. And, and generally speaking, it sounds worse than what we hear when we just talk. Our own voice sounds mellow and deep and wonderful and sonorous and <laughs> terrific. And then when we get it out in the outside air, all of a sudden it sounds kind of weedy and thin and crackly and gross. So I, I recommend that uh, anybody that's interested in doing voice work or doing impressions, you got to get super familiar with 
the way your actual voice sounds in the open air by recording yourself and listening a lot. And that you will begin to go, oh, okay, well, here's the base. This is what I have to work with. Uh, so then, you know, if, if it's uh, Robin Williams, you mentioned Robin Williams. Well, Robin Williams had a kind of a sound that was sort of, he brought it back in his face, like a lot of people from Juilliard did. It's a sort of a trend, I don't know, sort of a fashion. And then you also know that his velocity speeds up. Sometimes he talks very fast. And you can start to analyze it vis-a-vis -vis yourself and make that comparison between your own thing. But it's an art form, too. There's no right or wrong. You know, an eight-year-old boy or an 11-year-old boy can do a hilarious uh, Bernie Sanders he doesn't really, if you put the two recordings side by each, you would know exactly which one was the authentic one. But once again, it's the viewpoint is the most important thing. Uh, lots of people can do Donald Trump, but the ones that really occupy his viewpoint, we find are the most satisfying. Some of them have, and this is not to be political, uh, it gains me nothing. Some people do Donald Trump and they obviously hate Donald Trump. And their agenda is to, you know, take the piss out of Donald Trump and make him seem like a fool. Other impressionists, whether regardless of how they feel about Donald Trump, present his viewpoint. And it's funny anyway, because they're not Donald Trump. Maybe they're a woman. Maybe they're a, a teenager. You know, maybe they're Hispanic. It's hilarious to the audience in a way that the other one is not quite so hilarious. That one's hilarious to one group. And the other one is kind of universally hilarious because of, of the magic trick of it. I was like, that's not Donald Trump, but boy, he sounds like Donald Trump. Yeah. Viewpoint is super important and knowing your own voice is very important. It's an art form. What do you want to do with it? You take 10 artists, 10 painters and put them in front of a, a, another human being to do their portrait and all those paintings are going to look completely different. In my case, I like to, I'm a realist. I'm a realist painter. I like to kind of really get in there and, and, and match it. I'm not interested in doing a caricature. I'm not a caricaturist. I have total respect for the art form. I, I don't do it easily, caricature, even you know, drawing it. It's, it's, it's a chore for me. I'm much more interested in picking apart all the layers and presenting it as I see it. And that's very good for a, a career like mine where I'm doing a lot of voice matching for film and television where we're replacing an actor's voice or trying to, you know, we can't get him in. We can't get Colin Firth in to do this movie trailer line. So for 1917, so they'll hire me. And, and that's useful in that field, at least is for the time being. Also, there's like Jim Carrey, who does these incredible, he makes a sculpture out of his face and body to create a, a caricature of, of somebody. And that's also wonderful. It's just like, what do you want to do? What do you feel comfortable doing? What do you think is cool? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an art. Who is the hardest impression you've ever done, you think? And who's your favorite to do? Uh, well, I'll speak to my, my, my lately. My favorite to do is Patrick Stewart, because it's just such a wonderful way to, to be. I mean, he seems to be very accepting and very in, at peace and, and very British. So, you know, it's a it's a win win. Uh, I, I encounter hard ones all the time and difficult ones to do. But there are certain ones like Alan Rickman, where you have to somehow draw back the inside of your face up and tuck it up under your medulla oblongata to produce a kind of resonance that he had. I, I, I'm not the best at it and, and I can't quite do what I hear in, in my head, but the voices like that. Jeff Bridges is the same way, man. He's like, uh, he's got the sound and resonance is coming from some other part of his head, man. And this, you have to kind of find, I, I find I, I'm thinking a lot about the phys physicality of, of how that, what you have to do to your, your instrument to create those sounds. It's so much fun to listen it to really you is. It's just a work delight. at that. We will in the show notes for this include some uh, links, particularly to your deep fake video, which is phenomenal. And just to admit upfront how stupid I am. For the first half dozen impressions, I wasn't aware there was a deep fake going. I thought, boy, he changes his face and his voice. He is that good. And then all of a sudden you had a mustache. Oh, okay. That was okay. the one okay. that okay. Yeah, is exactly where I was. He became yeah. Morgan Freeman. I was like, how did that? Mu oh, this. Oh, there's Wait a, a minute. thing going on. Was that a tough thing to technically, or did you just have to show up and, and do it? And they did the worst. Well, I was kind of, yeah. I collaborated with a guy in England named Sam Head who uh, contacted me and he's now a very big SFX guy for um, um, Industrial Light and Magic, working on Star Wars stuff now. But uh, at the time he was figuring out how to do this deep fake stuff and he, he sent me a sample of something he'd done to one of my videos saying, hey, this is my idea. What do you think of this? And I was like, 
<laughs> flabbergasted, you know, I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely sounds like fun. And in that first one that you're referencing, we did several together, actually, if you haven't seen them all, it might interest you to, to uh, chase them up. But um, that first one was so successful, I think, because yeah, about the first three or four voices, the people don't look that different than the face architecture is not that different. The nose widens a little bit, the jaw does this and then the eyes change a little bit. But if you're not paying strong attention, you don't really you don't fully register all those changes until something like the mustache dropping down happens. And then you're like, oh, oh wait a minute. He's been messing with me this whole time. So I think it, it was a that was a, an example of a magic trick for sure that had a technical aspect, but it was buttressed by the performance and the viewpoint, which was expressed in the poem that I was doing. Yeah, it is a magic trick, uh, the way he does it. And uh, he is willing to just do it at the drop of a hat, which is so charming. I mean, we just trying to remember everybody he just did in that short interview, David Blaine, Garrison Keillor, Rob Should Williams, of course. Note. Yeah, he just was terrific. He does Ron Howard. Who does Ron Howard? He does Harvey Keitel. Who does Harvey Keitel? Exactly. He's got them all. He's got a huge palette of voices. It's incredible. Yeah, it really is fun. And uh, as he said, and this is something that is applicable to magicians, he says, figure out something that's portable to demonstrate your skill and your ability to delight people and just have that with you in your hip pocket, have a thing that can delight people. And I know there are, there's one school of magicians who always carry something uh, and are ready to do it at the drop of a hat. And there's another school that are like, ah, that's my job. And I don't do that for free. And I'm not going to do that. And they each have their reasoning behind that. I do know that in the corporate setting, the magicians who, while getting ready for an event, were willing to do something kind of on the spur of the moment for an executive during a rehearsal or something are the magicians who get invited back. Because Mike Super. Mike Super, as we've mentioned when we talked to him uh, last year, he spent more time after the corporate event doing magic for the attendees than he did on stage. Uh, easily much more. And they had they had him back the next year. Yeah. Um, and uh, normally that doesn't happen in the corporate world where they go, we already had a magician. We need something else. Right. In their mind, they didn't have a magician. They had Mike Super. and He was great. Let's have him back. Right. Exactly. So it's, 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 you know, the things that Jim Meskman are talking about are uh, applicable across all performance arts. We are so excited to talk to Jim about being an impressionist, but he's also an in-demand character actor and voice actor. And Jim uh, Cunningham and I had a much longer conversation with Mr. Meskman about his acting career growing up as the son of Marion Ross of Happy Days and how he broke into the business. So while this interview focused on the impressions, we have another hour-long interview with him that digs deeper into the life of being a character actor in Hollywood. Yeah, and I think in that interview on the other podcast, uh, you can hear my story about Marion Ross. Spoiler alert, she kisses me. Yeah. So you'll want to check that out. You can find that on the Occasional Film Podcast. It's episode 108, in which my occasional co-host, Jim Cunningham, and I chatted with Jim at length about his acting career. Uh, that's the Occasional Film Podcast. We've got links for that in the show notes. You can hear much more about Jim and other fun stuff in that podcast. Uh, yeah. So check out the link in the show notes to the Occasional Film Podcast, where I am an occasional co-host you can listen to that interview with Jim Maskeman but the episode before that one episode 107 great discussion with our good friend Dawn Brody and Brian Forrest about the best and worst movies made from the books Frankenstein and Dracula and they are experts on those topics and it was really fun chatting with them anyway we're not here to talk about the other podcast occasional really film podcast we're here to jump into this episode's chapter the bullet catcher actually chapters yeah because there's going to be 23 and 24 i've made my peace with it it's Can fine you bring us up to date i will uh we've had uh max's wake uh we've seen franny and megan are there there's some advice from deirdre we we saw the broken wand ceremony we saw the funeral procession and that takes us right into chapters 23 and then chapter 24. <laughs> the bullet catch an eli marks mystery chapter 23 I think I share the same sentiment that most people have toward bagpipes. I wouldn't say I hate them, 
but I can't imagine going to an evening of bagpipe selections. Not even if they were performed by the equivalent of Yasa Heifetz on the Stradivarius of bagpipes, if such exists. Harry is the rare exception who can't get enough of bagpipes. However, he is also a realist who recognizes his is clearly the minority position. That being said, I know he really wanted a bagpipe rendition of Amazing Grace at the cemetery as a final tribute to Max. To appease all parties, he landed on an elegant solution. As Max's urn was lowered into the ground of the plot he shares with his late wife Irene, we were treated to the distant strains of Amazing Grace. Harry had instructed the musician to stand on a nearby hill, about 200 yards from the small hill we were perched on. The music was haunting and evocative, but most importantly, it was distant, blessedly distant. While the urn was slowly lowered, I looked out at Lake Calhoun, which is adjacent to the large and sprawling cemetery. From my vantage point, I could just pick out Trish's condo tower on the far side of the lake. It was the tallest structure at that end of Calhoun, and easy to spot high above the trees. I thought about what Deirdre had said about Trish and the last man standing syndrome, and what she'd said about Mr. Lyme. I wasn't so sure he was dead, but I also wasn't surprised she hadn't been able to find a trace of him. He was like a sickly wisp of smoke, quick to appear and impossible to grasp. Harry stood by my side, and as we all listened to the last strains of Amazing Grace, and without even thinking about it, I put my arm around his shoulder, and after a few moments, he leaned into me and sighed. Twice in one day. It's like I won the lottery. Deirdre looked at me from behind her desk, her reading glasses perched near the end of her nose. I stood in the doorway, not yet getting the sense I was approved for entry. Can I come in? She nodded as she took off her glasses. The DA's office is always glad to welcome the general public. I entered, eyeing the guest chair in front of her desk, but not wanting to commit to it just yet. How was the burial? I shrugged. Sort of odd. A bunch of ashes are stuffed into a $200 tin can and then dumped into a hole in the ground. A peculiar custom. And this, coming from the same fellow who once tried to convince me of the value of buying matching cemetery plots for our second anniversary. What can I say? I'm a romantic guy. And as I remember, it was a hell of a deal. Deirdre chuckled. My loss. How's Harry? I think it was good for him to go through the ceremony and the rituals. He's still down, but I guess that's to be expected. So what brings you into the office? I have a favor to ask. Give it a shot. I wasn't sure how to phrase it, so I just blurted it out. Can I look at the Dylan LaSalle crime scene photos again? She gave me a long look, and I felt any warmth that might have existed suddenly drain from the room. Why? I have an idea. A theory. I'd like to check it out. Would you care to share that theory with me? And when I say me... I mean the assistant district attorney in charge of the case and not your long-suffering ex-wife. I'd rather not. Another long pause. Why? Because it's probably stupid. It won't be the first time you look stupid in front of me. And it certainly won't be the last, but this time I'd rather avoid that. We looked at each other for what seemed like a long time without talking. Humor me, I said finally. Eli, I've been doing that in one form or another since the day we met. I had to give her that. Then once more won't kill you. Sensing this was one of the rare arguments with me she was likely to lose, she rifled through a stack of file folders on her desk, pulling out one that was stuck in the middle. I see it's no longer at the top of the pile. It's not a cold case yet, but it's getting cooler every day, she said, as she carefully opened the file. She flipped past pages of documents until she got to the photos and then placed the folder on her desk. She unhurriedly 
rotated the folder so I was looking at the photos right side up. I could feel her staring at me as I slowly looked through the images. They were just as graphic as I had remembered. I did my best to show no reaction as I reviewed photo after photo of Dylan's body, photographed from multiple angles. There was one thing I was looking for, one thing that should have been there, and it wasn't. I got to the last image, gave it a long look, then closed the file folder. I lifted my head and caught Deirdre's eye. Well, I shook my head. Nope, I said. Dumb theory. Would you care to share it now? I shook my head again. Let's just forget we even had this conversation. Happily. She grabbed the file folder and placed it back on top of her stack of folders. Anything else I can do for you? No, thanks. Give my best to Harry. She put her reading glasses back on and returned to her work. Okay, I said quietly as I walked out of her office. As I stepped into the elevator, I wasn't thinking about how I had just lied to my ex-wife. Instead, I was thinking about high school reunions and Max Monarch's skill with cards and old people with age spots holding hands. And I was thinking about a withered psychopath and a movie poster and a garbled prediction from an occasionally reliable phone psychic. In short, I was thinking I finally understood what was going on and why nothing had happened to Trish. Or worse, why something was about to happen to Trish if I didn't get there in time to stop it. The only thing I wasn't thinking was the likelihood I might be wrong. Chapter 24 Hello? Trisha's voice, filtered through the lobby intercom system, sounded stressed. Hi, I said, leaning toward the small holes in the silver plate on the wall. It's me, Eli. I'm downstairs in your lobby. I tried calling you on your cell, but I kept getting put into voicemail. Eli? Is everything okay? She still sounded stressed, but now she seemed to be stressed about me. Oh, sure. I just wanted to talk to you. I got some insight today into Dylan's death, I think. Maybe. The more I talked, the less sure I felt. Oh, great. Why don't you... Why don't you come up? There was a click on the speaker, followed by a buzz by the door. I grabbed the door handle and pulled it open, heading into the lobby and toward the elevator bank. As I waited for one of the three elevators, I couldn't help but think of Franny's admonishment to stick to the lobby level. And for a brief moment, I even considered calling Trish again and asking her to come down. But then, the middle elevator dinged, the door slid open, and I stepped in and pressed the button for the 29th floor. Before I could give it another thought, the elevator began its quick ascent. My, you're all dressed up. I'd forgotten I was still in the suit and tie I had worn to Max's memorial service. I hadn't expected to start the conversation talking about my wardrobe, so I was momentarily thrown off the plan I put together in the elevator. Yes, I just came from, uh, there was a memorial service this afternoon for one of my uncle's friends. Trish had moved away from the front door, crossing the room to pull the only set of curtains that weren't already closed. It was nearly dusk outside, and three lamps lit the living room. Hanging lights over the center island in the kitchen illuminated that part of the room. A memorial service, sorry to hear that, she said as she pulled the curtain cord. I remember your problem with heights, she continued, gesturing to the curtained windows, and thought you'd be more comfortable without the view. Yes, that's great, I said, stepping slowly into the room and shutting the door behind me. That's very thoughtful. She gestured toward the couch. Can I get you something? Coffee? Iced tea? I shook my head as I sat down. The couch was less firm than advertised, and I sank into the cushions rather further than I had anticipated. No, thanks, but if you want something, don't let me stop you. No, I'm okay, she said, taking a seat on a matching chair across from me. I glanced around the room and noticed two suitcases on the floor by the hallway. Are you going somewhere? I pointed toward the suitcases. No, I wish, she said with a laugh. 
I was doing some cleaning and realized I have far too many suitcases. I'm not sure where they all came from, so I set a couple of the older ones aside to bring down to the homeless shelter. I smiled. I have a bunch of things I could unload as well, I guess. Who knows how it all piles up? We both laughed in agreement. After a suitable pause, Trish leaned forward. So you said you had something about Dylan's death? I think you said insight? I shrugged. Maybe. Some pieces sort of came together in my head today. I went down to the DA's office and did some checking without, I was quick to add, letting them know I might be onto something. Okay. I sat back, trying to figure out the best way to start what was feeling more and more like a wild-ass idea. Trish waited patiently while I gathered my thoughts. Finally, I leaned forward and just dove in. There's an idea in magic raised by a really great magician named Darwin Ortiz that if you can get the audience to ask the wrong question, you are guaranteed they'll never come up with the right answer. Okay. I could tell she was being patient with me, letting me present my idea before asking any questions. For example, I went on, if you get them thinking you're using sleight of hand, they'll never realize card trick is essentially self-working. All right, she said, drawing the words out. I sensed I needed to get to a point of some kind. So the question we've all been asking is who killed Dylan, right? She nodded in agreement. But the problem we're running into, I continued, is no one is getting anywhere with that question. Not you, not me, not the police. But I think that might be the wrong question. And that's why we can't come up with the right answer. So what is the right question? Trish said quietly as she leaned forward, moving to the edge of her chair. I think the correct question is, is Dylan really dead? It seemed to take her several moments to absorb the meaning of the words. Is Dylan really dead? She repeated. I was at a memorial this afternoon for this magician, Max Monarch, a really terrific card magician, and one of his signature moves was a deck switch. What's that? It's exactly what it sounds like. At some point in a performance, you take a deck of cards that has been thoroughly examined or shuffled by an audience member. You take it, and unbeknownst to them, you switch it with a cold deck, which is a deck you've prepared in some special way. And I think that's what Dylan did. He switched decks. He switched decks? I'm not sure I understand. Well, not literally, of course. I was gaining traction and started to dig in. Look, remember when we were at the reunion and they stamped our hands with an ink mark as we came in? She nodded as she thought about it. Something about keeping interlopers from coming in and eating our food. I think it was supposed to be our school mascot, but it really just looked like a black smudge. That's right, and we all got one. I even looked at the photos that pushy photographer is trying to sell online, and you can see everyone got one. And I also remember it took me about ten minutes to wash it off the day after the reunion. Trish continued to nod. Yes, I remember how annoying it was. Well, I continued, I looked at the crime scene photos of Dylan's murder again this afternoon. The police were very thorough about the photos. They shot every part of him, and there wasn't a mark on his hand, either hand, no stamp. Trish sat back as she considered this. Maybe he washed it off before he went out jogging. Maybe, but it seems unlikely. You said you both came home, and he went out immediately for a run. He didn't take a shower or anything before he left, did he? Trish shook her head. No, no, he didn't. She got up and crossed the room, picking up one of two wine glasses on the kitchen counter. She opened the refrigerator and brought out a bottle of wine. She uncorked the half-full bottle and was about to pour when she stopped. But I identified the body. I went downtown and identified the body. I know. But I think Dylan found someone about his same height and build, switched clothes, and then shot him. I suddenly remembered Franny's odd psychic prediction. The man who got shot was the man who got shot, but he wasn't. 
I had made the assumption that it referred to Jake and the character he was playing in the movie. But in retrospect, I think she saw right through Dylan's staged mugging and the scenario he was trying to create for the police. Dylan was the man who got shot, but he wasn't. They said he was shot first in the heart and then in the head, I continued, trying to keep my thoughts focused on recounting my theory for Trish. In the face, Trish corrected. It was horrible. It certainly was, I agreed, remembering the photos. Under those circumstances, it's completely understandable you'd think it was Dylan. In fact, I think he was counting on that. She finished pouring the wine and held the bottle up to me. I shook my head. She set the bottle on the counter and headed back toward her chair. So, if Dylan is alive... She began taking a sip as she sat down. She left her sentence hanging, so I finished it. If Dylan is alive, then suddenly the other murders make sense. He was in business with Howard Washburn, and maybe Washburn knew about his plan to fake his death. And Sylvia Washburn? Well, given her reaction when I mentioned Dylan to her, I think they may have been having an affair, maybe, I added in an effort to soften that blow. With Sylvia Washburn, Trish said quietly, That makes sense. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. And maybe with those loose ends tied up, Dylan really has disappeared. Mr. Lime said something about Dylan taking some money that belonged to him. Trish interrupted, Mr. Lime? I shook my head. No, Lime. That's not his real name. Just the name he told me. He's this creepy old guy that knew Dylan and had some sort of dealings with him. Trish sat back. She took a sip of wine and repeated the name quietly. Mr. Lime. Anyway, he said Dylan owed him. I think it might have been money. Something from one of his courier jobs. Maybe Dylan has taken that money and is really gone for good. You keep saying maybe, Trish said. Well, I say maybe because there's always the chance he considers you to be a loose end that still needs to be tied up. I sat back, again, sinking further into the couch than anticipated. But since he hasn't made any attempt so far, I think that's becoming less and less likely. Trish considered what I had just told her. And you haven't shared this theory with the DA or the police? She asked. I shook my head. Not yet. Why not? Because, I said, if Dylan really is gone, that's a good thing for you. The police have no further leads, and this is quickly turning into a cold case. I think if nothing else surfaces, they'll file it away as unsolved. And what happens if you tell them your theory? I shrugged. Maybe nothing, but if they think Dylan is alive and on the run, that could blow this thing up even larger than before. If he's crossed state lines, that might pull the FBI into it. It could get big. Trish smiled. And you prefer the version where Dylan is gone and I'm free and clear? I returned the smile. I do. I think you've had your share of bad guys. I think you're right. Thank you, Eli. No problem. And as long as Dylan is convinced there are no more loose ends, I'd say everything is going to be fine. The problem is, said a voice behind me, that now I have one more loose end to clear up. Trish rolled her eyes. I tried turning around, but that was harder than anticipated as I was being swallowed by the couch. I was finally able to prop myself up against a cushion and turn to see who this new voice belonged to. In my gut, I already knew. Standing in the hallway with a gun in his hand was Dylan LaSalle. Okay, there's a lot that there went really on is. there. There's a whole bunch. And as it turns out, Dylan is not dead. And uh, I think we are fast approaching the the climax of this book. Uh, wow. Okay. So how many chapters are left? 
uh, there are two more chapters left. So uh, okay. it, it's, uh, and we know there's another book after this one. So yeah. Eli must survive. It's just a question of how does he get himself out of this situation? And that is that is coming fast. Anyway, that uh, next time you'll get to listen to chapter 25. And you'll also get to listen to us chat with one of my favorite magicians in the world, David Williamson. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. He's dynamite. On stage, off stage, in the interview, after we stopped recording, he is he is liquid gold, dynamite, just fun, fun, he, fun. He is, you know, last episode when we were talking about the idea of masterclasses, I saw him do a masterclass on stage at Magi Fest with a, a very willing young magician. There, there were, you know, five, 600 magicians in the audience. And Dave Williamson said, I'm willing to work with one of you one-on-one -on -one who wants to do it. No one raised their hands. They were no, terrified yeah. to do uh, part of their routine in front of David Williamson. And this kid got up and it was hysterically funny. And the kid was a very good sport about it. But everything David said was correct. All the stuff the kid was doing wrong, just fantastic help on, uh, you know, every little comma and pause and motion. And he's a fascinating, funny guy because he knows so much about magic and he knows so much about performance. Anyway, that'll be coming up in our next episode as we begin to wind down season two. And then we have a big surprise episode after David Williamson, although David Williamson's a pretty good surprise. Yeah. But we'll have our final episode of the season is, uh, oh boy. Anyway, we'll talk more about that you next time. Uh, you don't, please don't tip your hat. Yet. I'm not going to tip anything it's on that. Good, But it's too good. Especially if you're a magic person. This is a good one. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, um, that's it for this one. Check out the show notes for videos of Jim uh, Meskimen doing impressions. Yeah. And watch those deep fake videos because they'll scare the pants off you like they did me. And check out the link to the new episode of the Occasional Film Podcast. Did you say it was episode 108? It's episode 108. All right. And there you're going to find a different interview with Jim Meskimen about the life of a character actor. And you'll hear my story about Marion Ross. All right, that's all for now, folks. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Take care. That's a nice little sound effect there. How about that? This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.